Well, I want you to turn to a parallel passage of the same story, Mark chapter 6. So take your device or your Bible and go to Mark chapter 6. One of the best knowns, best known of all the miracle stories. Do you think miracles happen today? God breaking into the natural flow of cause and effect. When you look in the Old Testament, miracles tend to gather around certain periods of time, certain people like Moses with the Exodus or Elijah. And then you read about the life of Jesus, and he is consistently, effortlessly performing miracles. And they're always for the point of uh, reminding people or pointing out who he was, his identity as the Son of God. And then if you look at the apostles in the book of Acts and moving on through that apostolic period, they're performing a miracle, miracles, but yet not all the time. Uh, Paul, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, says, I left my friend Trophimus sick in the town of, of Miletus. And you look all through the record of history from the early days of the church up until now, and it's one record of miracle after another, and it's also one record of suffering. When I've prayed and asked God to answer a prayer, when I want something so deeply and it doesn't happen, I tend to think I'm not working hard enough to turn that miracle. Or God doesn't listen, or He doesn't care. But He never promised us that we would not suffer in this life. What He promised us is His presence with us, and to think that God will do miracles on demand or He'll perform exactly what I wish that he would do. Really, is to make him kind of a genie in a bottle and not the sovereign Lord that he is. And yet, I think there are more miracles taking place than we realize. In fact, I think if you could gather all the Christians of all the cultures all around the world, and they could tell of these uncanny coincidences that happen, I think we'd be stunned. We live in an age of miracles. When someone comes to Christ that is a miracle. The new birth is a supernatural work of God where he takes a person's heart and turns it, helps a person to see the beauty of Jesus, convicts a person of sin. It's a supernatural work of God when someone comes to Christ and they are, are redeemed, they're regenerated, they're saved. And when God moves in a church in supernatural power and old conflicts are resolved, Parentless children get adopted, and timid people become bold in their witness for Christ, and proud people are humbled, and addictions are broken, and marriages are restored. We tend to call that revival, and what it is, it's God moving into the normal flow of cause and effect. It's really a miracle. So does anybody need a miracle today? Anybody here facing something, and you don't have the resources to handle it, or you feel like God's calling you to do something you just cannot do. Let's see what guidance God gives us from this passage of Scripture. Mark chapter 6, and I want to begin with verse 30 and go all the way to verse 44. It's another account of the same uh, story that we have heard. By the way, of all the miracles Jesus performed, and the Scripture records about three dozen different kinds of miracles, that's just the tip of the iceberg, many, many more than that. But of all the miracles he performed, there are only two that are mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The resurrection 
and the story we're about to read. And the question is, why? What is it about this story that caused Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, each one of them, to record this story? So Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus, told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said, how many loaves do you have? We're in a series called about the questions that Jesus asked. Over 300 different questions. This is the question for today. What do you have? What, what do you have? How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, he said, they said five and two fish, and he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in, by groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word. Why did all the... Uh, why did Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all record this particular miracle of all the miracles Jesus performed? I thought about that a lot this week, and I think one of the answers has to do with the magnitude of this particular miracle. Jesus fed 5,000 men, and Matthew says, besides the women and children. So you find 5,000 men, chances are you'll find maybe 5,000 women and kids. So we're talking maybe 20,000 people maybe 25,000 people with five little barley loaves. I used to wonder when I was growing up, what mom would give a kid five loaves of bread carry around? No, these were, these were like biscuits. These were like crackers. They're like little nuggets. And two fish, and these are not salmon fillets. These are, these are little pickled sardines that you would spread on top of the cracker just to make it edible. Last Friday night, a couple of days ago, Ruthie and I sat in a football stadium to watch our, one of our grandsons play at a high school football game. There were 4,000 people in that stadium. They were, we were packed side by side. And thinking about this story, I just stood up and looked around. 4,000 people. And I wondered what would happen if Jesus came to me and said, I want you to feed all these people. Well, what do you have? Well, I got these chicken Chick-fil-A minis, and I can <laughs> do it. And, the, and, and they did it. The impossible took place. 
Sooner or later, every single one of us finds ourselves in a place where we simply don't know what to do and we're facing what seems to be impossible. We don't have the resources. It's a health issue or it's a financial issue or it's a, an emotional issue. We're just overwhelmed. Here's the question. What in your life appears impossible? What keeps you awake at night? What is releasing acid in your stomach? What do you do when you fall short, you run out of time or energy or money or ideas or help? I was talking to someone one time about stress, and he said, you know, people are like ducks. They look calm and cool on the surface, but inside they're paddling as fast as they can go. Kind of a picture of the way many of us live our lives. So why did Jesus feed 20,000 people, people with with hardly enough food for a little boy to eat. Well, John, that we heard read a moment ago, says it was a test. It's not unusual for Jesus to ask people to do that which was impossible. People with, unlim- with limited resources, he would not hesitate to tell people to do what they could not do. He told a man who had been crippled since birth, stand up and walk. He's crippled. He told a dead girl, wake up. She's dead. And the crippled man stands up. And the little girl comes awake. Jesus would often ask his people to do what they could not do. And he will often test us and he will stretch our faith. He'll put us into situations where we are way out of our depth. We're just barely treading water. He's told us as a church to go to all nations and take the gospel to every people group on earth. And friends, there are places where we cannot go unless we're willing to go and die. Ruthie and I were in the Himalayas way up in northern India on a mission trip a few years ago. And we ran into a young man named Samuel from South India. And his church had sent him up to North India to plant a church up among the Buddhist people in those Buddhist Tibetan villages. And we got to talking to him and he was scared to death. 20 years old, scared to death lonely. He said, I, I wrote my dad and I said, can I come back home? And he said, this is, my, the, this is the letter my dad sent me. He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. That's what his dad said. He said his church back home had a board, you know, kind of a Maybe some of you grew up in a church and there was this little announcement board up in the front and there's the hymns or the amount of money that came in last week or the attendance figures. He said in his church they had a board. It's a martyr board. There's seven names on that board of people who left and died. And he said they just made space for a, an eighth name. Jesus will ask you to do for his glory what you don't know that you can do. He has told us to forgive people who are, forgive situations that are unforgivable. He has told us to love people who are not lovable. This story tells us when we have very little and we give it to him, that he combines it with his very much and anything can happen in his time and in his way for his glory. But following Jesus is a life of impossible commands, hopeless situations, and God doing what just seems to be impossible. 
One of the things about this story that just intrigues me is the number of details in this story. They're told it was a desolate place, but it's not a desert because he mentions green grass. So this is springtime in Israel. Um, This is up in what today is the Golan Heights, and we're told it's late, so we're thinking it's this beautiful spring day, late in the afternoon or evening. The sun is beginning to set. People have been there all day, and they're getting hungry. And I really wonder if it's the disciples who are getting hungry. Um, because they're the ones who came to Jesus and said, we, we need to do something. We're fine. But all those people are hungry. You understand, Jesus, couldn't you do something? They brought the question up. I'm hungry. We thought he would finish his teaching by noon. Because we got to get to the restaurant ahead of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he goes to one two, three, goes to four o'clock. And so I think the disciples kind of, you know, in your mind, you kind of imagine how things might have happened. I think they kind of caucused together and said, Peter, he likes you. Can you interrupt him and do something? We're starving. We've not had anything to eat all day long. So Peter goes to Jesus and says, excuse me, Lord, uh, all these people are hungry. And matter of factly, Jesus says, you feed them. (laughs) <laughs> so Peter goes back to his disciples and he says what he said and they go what and he goes, goes back to Jesus what, how do we, what do you have so the disciples fan out among all of that huge crowd and they come back and they say well here's what we found we got two fish sticks and five hush puppies that's all we've got and Jesus says feed them feed them You know, one of the things that we take for granted is the availability of food in our time. It doesn't matter where you travel, chances are you'll have no trouble finding food and the abundance of of food. Do you know how much food Americans waste? Did a little research this year, uh, this week. We waste 150,000 tons of food every day, more than any other country in the world. And in the time of Jesus, food was not easily available. It was not abundant. There were no grocery stores. There were no fast food places, but they're not far from town. They can get to a town, but markets have probably been closed down. And besides, what would it cost to feed this crowd? And they begin to calculate. One of the disciples says, Philip, John says, Philip says it would cost, it would cost more than a half a year's wages. The denarii was one working man's wage for a day, six, seven months worth of income to feed them. And they just come back from a mission trip where Jesus said, don't take any food with you and don't take any money. So they don't have it anyway. They're flat broke. And even if they had food, there was no time because the crowd is there, there is demanding. So end of the day, they're tired. People are tired. A lot of people are hungry. There's no McDonald's. What do you do? And Jesus says, you feed them. They say, well, send the people away. And Jesus said, no. You feed them. And John puts it like this. We heard it a moment ago. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He himself knew what he would do. I love that. Jesus is always in control of the situation. We're fearful. We're nervous. 
or we're excited. Jesus knows what he's going to do. You're confronted with a problem you cannot overcome. You're dealing with something you don't have the resources uh, to deal with. It's a family issue. It's financial. It's work-related. It's health-related. It's a relationship. You don't know what you're going to do. Jesus knows what he's going to do. I take great comfort in those words. Some of you ought to put that on the refrigerator with a magnet. He knows what he's going to do. Put it on the dash of your car. He knows what he's going to do in your life. He knows the end of the story. He knows how the problem is going to be resolved. The interesting thing about this story is this takes place midway through the ministry of Jesus. So the disciples have seen lots of miracles already. You would have thought they would come and had come and and said something like, "Uh, uh, Jesus, all these people are hungry. This would be a good time for a miracle, but they do not. It's like they have spiritual amnesia. I had a friend one time who was in a terrible car accident, and I went to visit Jeff in the hospital, and he looked up at me and he said, "Uh, who are you? He said, they they tell me this is my wife, and his wife Diane was sitting there, and, and they tell me that I work for this company, pull out a business card, and, and who are you? Amnesia is a horrible thing. And some of us suffer from spiritual amnesia. All the times that God has blessed us, all the times that God has come through for us, all the times that God has spoken to us, and it's like they're not in our mind anymore. And we, we're thinking, well, what do I have in my pocket rather than what the Lord has in his pocket? Listen, friends. Anyone who can turn tap water into the finest wine can do anything. I want you to look at this picture a moment. This is the Andromeda galaxy. It's the nearest galaxy to us. It's only 2.5 million light years away. Light travels at what? Engineers? 186,000 miles a second. It's 2.5 million light years away. Forget what Star Trek shows. None of us could begin to move. And it's huge. It's massive. 152,000 light years just across it. And it's one of billions of galaxies. And I read this week where the prophet said he created the stars with the breath of his mouth. He speaks a word. Billions of galaxies, massive. Maybe when you need a miracle, the best thing you can do is simply stop. Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Just stop because our normal reaction when we're overwhelmed is to work harder, more frenzied. I think we forget the lesson of Rudy. Remember the movie Rudy? Rudy's this short guy, and he wants to play football at Notre Dame. And he goes to the old priest and is asking for help. And the old priest said, you know, son, I've been in ministry a long, long time, and there are two lessons that I have learned. Number one, I'm not, number one, there is a God, and number two, I'm not him. And I think we forget what God can do. The great thing is we can turn to the source of miracles. We can turn to the one who carries our burdens, can do the impossible in his way and in his timing for his glory. Think about that miracle for just a moment. How did it happen? How did they feed those tens of thousands of people? How did he, how did he do it? We get a clue in verse 41 
that it happened in the very hands of Jesus. The Greek uses a, the imperfect tense, which is continuous action in the past. And it pictures the idea that the more Jesus broke the bread, the more bread there was to break. The more fish there was to, that he broke, the more fish there was. You know, some people are just naturally skeptical of this kind of thing. Some have, has, have suggested this did not happen. But this story bears the marks of authenticity of an eyewitness. Most of the commentators say that Mark is really the record of the recollections of Peter. Maybe Mark interviewed Peter as he's sitting in prison toward the end of his life, and Peter is remembering that afternoon and the green grass that was there and the argument that the disciples had with Jesus. If you're going to make up a story to convince people Jesus is the Son of God, would you have the disciples arguing with him or just bowing down very, very compliant? Some people say this is, this is not super, the supernatural, that Jesus is standing in front of a cave where he stored food earlier. So he's passing out the food that he has stored. And the lesson is we should open our secret stashes and we should help poor people which is a wonderful thing to do. You know, give to a, a food bank. It's a good thing to do. That's not what the Gospels say. Some have said, well, there were, these were little bitty pieces of the food that, that were passed out to all. Kind of like the Lord's Supper. We, take, we get that little bitty tiny piece of bread. Really? You're going to feed 20,000 people with a kid's Happy Meal? They all ate and were satisfied, it says. The word satisfied is used in Revelation 19. It's translated gorged. This is Thanksgiving. This is eating until you can't eat anymore. This is just feeling full. And some people say this is a miracle of generosity, that that little boy gave his lunch and the crowd was so inspired they shared their food with each other. So no one was left hungry. And that's a heartwarming thought, but it doesn't explain the 12 baskets full after the meal was over. No, Mark says this really happened. So what does it mean? What does this mean? Well, John called it a sign. We all know a sign points to something beyond itself. And just like every miracle that meets human needs, the real issue, the real point, the meaning is something beyond the miracle itself. It's telling us something about Jesus. So I would suggest this is what it means. That Jesus is the shepherd who is knowledgeable, compassionate, and can powerfully provide whatever we need. Take those three parts. He's knowledgeable. He's aware. In fact, just before this miracle takes place, he has sent the disciples out on a mission trip they have come back. They have done miracles. They've been given his authority. They've been empowered. And they're excited like school children after the first day of school, little, little kids. And they're telling Jesus and regaling him with all of the things that they saw and had done. And Jesus says, I want you to come away with me for a little while because he understands brains and bodies have limits. And some of our greatest temptations come after our greatest achievements. And he recognizes a need for rest. Vince Habner used to say, if you do not come apart and rest, you will come apart. I think that's true. Mary had a little lamb, should have been a sheep, but had joined the local church and died for lack of sleep. 
Psalm 104 says he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we are but dust. He called them to rest after they had worn themselves out in ministry. Have you ever done that? Have you ever worn yourself out serving people? One of my life verses is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know the work of the Lord is not in vain. So he was aware of their need, and they crossed the Sea of Galilee. They get to the shore. People have followed them. The Sea of Galilee is large. It's a large lake, but it's not that large. You can see across it. People are watching them. They're running around the side of the lake, and when he gets there, people are everywhere, all these needs, people complaining, people begging him for help, and if it had been me, I would have said, send them away. We're exhausted. But Jesus is moved with compassion. That's the second thing. He's aware of the need. And that word compassion refers to you feel it in your gut. Their sadness is his sadness. Their pain causes him to hurt. And something wells up deep in the heart of Jesus as he sees that crowd. He didn't view people as an interruption. We do. The great miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels happened as a result of an interruption. There are times when it seems like nobody cares, nobody understands, nobody knows my deepest thoughts and my frustrations. Jesus knows your story. He knows the desolate place in your life. He is not a cold Savior. He hurts with you out of his compassion. He does what? He begins to teach them. You say, why would he do that? Because the greatest need they had was direction, was truth, was correction, was encouragement. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And he teaches until it's late, which tells me something about the kind of teacher Jesus was, that he can hold, people, hold a crowd for a long, long time, even when their stomach is growling. It says they were like sheep without a shepherd. Where are the shepherds? Where are the leaders? These people are leaderless. They are directionless. And Jesus' heart is moved with compassion for them. They're like sheep. Sheep cannot exist without a shepherd. Sheep cannot survive. I saw this video last week and just laughed and laughed. Maybe some of you have seen it. These shepherds pulled a sheep out of a ditch. It was stuck in this very narrow ditch, pulled it out of the ditch, and the sheep went running and jumped right back into the ditch. And Jesus saw that, and he's so moved with compassion. He's the, the shepherd who is knowledgeable, compassionate, and powerfully provides what we need. He says, have them sit down in groups of 100 and groups of 50. I don't think that was easy for the disciples to set that up. Have you ever tried to tell a group of people what to do? It would be easier to herd cats across Texas than to get these people. But they do, and it looks like a flower bed of color. We know there were 5,000 men because they counted them as they were, they were sitting down in groups all around that area on the green grass. Does that remind you of anything? The Lord is my shepherd. Say it with me. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that he's talking about there. 
And this is not the first time God has provided food for his people. Some of the people must have gone back in their minds to the wilderness wanderings after the exodus and they're complaining and they're hungry and God sends manna. Do you know what the word manna means? What is it? What is it? Angel food. God provides, and then he provides quail for the people. I want to close with four things. Jesus knows, cares, and provides what we need. What miracle do you need? Do what the disciples did. Hear his teaching. Go to Jesus with your need. And whatever you have, give it to him because he always begins with what we have. And you say, I don't have much. You give to him and do what he says. Our little granddaughter, Eloise, was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which means half of her heart was not formed. And her mom, Sarah, our daughter, lived with tubes running throughout the house, and Sarah was such a great caregiver for her little daughter, and she's a little toddler running around, and she'd fall down on the ground, just try to breathe. And Sarah was exhausted when little Sam, her oldest child, was about five maybe, and Sam walked into the room and he was singing, How great is our God! Sing with me, Mommy! How great is our God! Sarah said it was like oxygen came in the room. Jesus not only knows and provides and cares what we need, he knows and cares and provides the needs of others through us. I think there's another reason this is in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle I can think of where Jesus involved his disciples in pulling it off. He didn't need them. He could have rained down a meal with pink parachutes if he wanted to, just with a, a look, a, a word. But he involves his followers, and it's the same way today. He wants you to be a part of the work that he does. And when that happens, when you cooperate with God, you never forget it. You think they ever forgot this? Was it in all four Gospels? You think that little boy with the meal ever forgot that? I was talking to one of our staff this last week, and he told me of a time that he helped someone come to Christ by faith in Jesus. He would, he couldn't, he would never forget that, the moment. I felt like God used me. You see, God can do miracles with or without us. He provides our needs, but many times he does it through others, and he uses us for others. So here's my question. What do you have? What do you have? You say it's not very much. God loves to use ordinary people. Would you have chosen this group of disciples if you were Jesus? Peter, open mouth, insert foot. I think one of the gospels says, Peter, not knowing what to say, spoke. <laughs> James and John, impulse control problems couple of odd heads. Thomas, he's the Eeyore of the disciples. Just ordinary people. And Jesus uses them and involves them in the meeting of a need. Here's a third thing. Before God can work with you or me, we have to be broken. Because Jesus takes that bread and breaks it. And it's, an, it's when we realize how helpless we are, how powerless we are, he says, how many loaves do you have? He says, it. 
Has God been breaking anybody here? Breaking your pride? Shattering your dreams? Your self-esteem is shaken? You're broken physically? Ruthie and I, driving back from Arkansas, this game that we watched, we're listening to the story of Elizabeth Elliot. It's a book about her life. And she lost three husbands to death. Three times grieving the loss of a husband. She wrote this. If all we have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. In a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a great strength for me. He will not refuse to receive it and use it. I believe in all of my heart that when our hearts get broken and we feel broken, God is setting us up for a blessing because brokenness precedes blessing. If you're in a place of brokenness, just get ready. But God may be ready to act. And when we meet the needs of others, our own needs get met. Those 12 baskets, is it any coincidence there were 12 apostles? Jesus cares for his followers as well. He provides for them. The day after the miracle, I'll close with this. The day after the miracle, Jesus is again teaching the crowd, and they wanted another meal. Uh, worship team, come on, come on up. I'll, I'll read this. This is from John. Right after the miracle. When they found him on the other side of the sea the next day, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, well, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And they said to him, then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus himself is the miracle we need. Anybody hungry? He's the bread of life. Anybody thirsty? He's the living water. Anybody lonely? I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Anybody fearing death? The resurrection and the life. He's the miracle we need, regardless of what else happens. He is what we need. Would you bow in prayer with me, please? Let's pray together. If you need a miracle, do what the disciples did. Go to him. Give him what you have. Ask him to meet a need. Trust him and realize that He's the bread you really need. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, would you do that today? God's opening your heart right now. You're saying he can do for you what nobody else can do. He can forgive what everyone else knows about you, that you are a sinner. He can give you eternal life. Call on him today. And right after this service, there will be people standing at the front of prayer team, and I invite you to come and just share with them giving your life to Christ, and then plan to be baptized in September.
Lord, what an amazing story. Thank you for the opportunity to read it, capture some insight about it, and call on you as our miracle maker and trust you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us. We give ourselves to you as best we know how. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together to our feet.